this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. Although my guest today has only just released her debut novel, she writes with the confidence of someone who's been doing so for years. Born in Kuwait, she moved across the world to Missouri, to Edinburgh and to London before settling back in her native country as an adult. She currently holds the position of Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Kuwait University. Her first book of short stories, The Hidden Light of Objects, won the Edinburgh International Book Festival's 2014 First Book Award. It was the first collection of short stories to do so. And this, her intimate and personal debut novel, An Unlasting Home, traces Kuwait's transformation from a pearl-diving backwater to its reign as a thriving cosmopolitan state to the aftermath of the Iraqi invasion. May Al-Naki, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much. Uh, it's lovely to have you here. And this book was really eye-opening for me, just telling us so much about the history of the Middle East, but but not in, in ways that we normally gain from, from newspapers. And what's also, of course, brilliant about it is that you've lived all this. I mean, obviously not back in 1924 <laughs> when some of it's set, but you are writing really from a place of great, great knowledge. I mean, it was... It is really a story in many ways that covers a lot of the geopolitical ground, a lot of the issues that come up in the Middle East, but told from a very personal perspective. The stories of these women and the lives that they lead. You know, it was important for me to get it. I really wanted to tell this multi-generational story about these women from different parts of the Middle East and how, you know, the political elements affect their lives, but really taking that from or approaching it from this very personal point of view. Yeah. I'd like to know about your multi-generational story. Tell me about your family history. So I was, as you said, you know, I was born in Kuwait, but I was really just a few months old when my parents moved to London, Edinburgh for a very short time, and then to St. Louis. And I was there till I was six and then moved back to Kuwait with my parents. And my mother insisted that she that we were registered at the American School of Kuwait. She thought it was very important that her daughters get the best possible education. And so I went to the American School in Kuwait, graduated. I went to Kuwait University, studied English literature there, and then went to the U.S. to get my master's and Ph.D. in literature as well. And then came back to Kuwait just after 2000. So it was around 2000 that I came back and then started working at Kuwait University myself in 2004. Mm. So my family, you know, so my my own kind of trajectory is somewhat similar to Sada's, the protagonist in the novel. So I build on some of my own experiences, but Sada's path is is really a bit different. It goes in a different direction. So there are traces of my own family history in the novel, but then again, fiction does what it does and kind of, you know, follows its own path. In terms of um, my own background, my mother's family, again, like Sara's mother, Noura, also had a footing in India. So they, you know, her, her father was a tradesman and like many Kuwaiti families, would move between Kuwait and either Mumbai or Pune. And so that that connection is also similar to Sada's family background. My paternal grandmother, like Yasmin in the novel, was also from Saida and then moved to through Iraq to Kuwait. So there are similarities in the characters to my own family history, but again, 
it very much is fiction in terms of how it unfolds. But it was kind of interesting for me. I thought it would be important to kind of demonstrate how cosmopolitan, you know, individual families can be in this part, in the Middle East, in yeah, the absolutely. region where I'm from. Yeah, Because your, your academic research has focused on, on cosmopolitanism, post-colonial issues, gender, cultural politics, all of these things that come up very, very much in the novel. I want to ask you... First, and I'm not sure if this is a rude question or not, are you a person of faith? Mm, No, not particularly. So I was brought up culturally Muslim, and it still remains part of my culture, you know, and it's it's very much how I grew up. But I, I think I turn to philosophy more than I do to faith or or to religion. So I have my own sense of ethics. You know, again, built on the philosophers that I love and and know deeply from Spinoza to, you know, Nietzsche and others. And I build my life and and my practices around those ethical perspectives. Mm. So that's important to me. I mean, and then faith becomes very important in the book because there was a there was a law brought in. in, Was it 2013? That's exactly right. So it was uh, in fact, I had already started writing, working on the novel. It had been almost a year and again, as I said, I, I knew I wanted to write this multi-generational story. So I started with the stories of Lulua and Yasmin, and I was writing them back and forth exactly in the way that they appear. But I didn't know how their lives would cross. I didn't really have a sense of where the novel was going, but that's okay for me because that my projects always kind of begin that way. And then in 2013, we had a very conservative parliament that was elected in 2012, And when they came, by 2013, they amended a law uh, that made blasphemy a capital crime. And the day that happened, I was absolutely devastated. And I immediately started to think, what would this mean to me as a professor at Kuwait University teaching material that could absolutely be construed as blasphemous? What was this going to do to activists on the ground, to journalists? Because Kuwait has a relatively liberal media. So what was this going to mean? And I really had no idea. And it was the next day that I woke up and started to write the Sada chapter because I put myself in that position. What would it mean if a professor at university was accused of blasphemy? And then it kind of dawned on me that Sada would be the granddaughter of these two women I was already writing about. Mm. And then very soon after, so it didn't, I think it was in a few months that the cabinet of ministers with the support of the Emir overturned this amendment and it didn't go into law and it was never practice. So, but once something like that happens, you're always a little bit nervous because it really, it it presents a a precedent of what might unfold in the future, Mm. you know, so... Uh How restricted are women in Kuwait by law? There are restrictions, but not... So when we say restrictions, so there are are certain laws, certain articles, for example, Article 153, which a lot of women activists are now fighting against. There's a group called Abolish 153, which is an article that legitimates domestic violence and even honor killing. So this is a law clearly that needs to be overturned and women are pushing and fighting against this kind of law. In terms of restrictions in the courts, family law can affect women's lives when it comes to divorce, inheritance, custody, things like that. 
But, you know, the kinds of things I think people imagine you can't drive or you can't dress the way you want or you're restricted in terms of your job or what you earn or property ownership, those things are not restricted by law for women. Women have enjoyed a lot, relatively, a great deal of freedom in Kuwait, especially compared to women in the region, in the mm. Gulf region in particular. And that's because like, in because of its cosmopolitan history. You know, when men in the past, when Kuwait was a purling port town with the men, you know, basing the economy was a seafaring uh, economy. Women were really the ones in control and were in control of the money, were in control of running the day-to-day business and things going on. All of that was in their hands, which meant that women had a lot of power and retained that sense of autonomy and power really into early statehood and beyond. Mm. But things, again, the region became more conservative in general, and that impacted Kuwait, and things started to change. And so then you, you, you have more restrictions. I think that what restricts women's lives the most in Kuwait has to do with what family they're born into. It's a bit of a luck of the draw. If you're born into a family with a very restrictive father, you're unlucky, and yeah. that can very much affect your, your life. And, of course, how you dress. So Yes, there's, exactly. There's this little bit from your book. This is Sarah. She's talking to her pupils. She says, I see you. I see your niqab. It tells me something about you. It makes me assume certain things, even if they aren't true. And then she says, you might be wearing the niqab because somebody made you. The reason you wear it, even if no one made you, is because of the power of the male gaze. It's so powerful, it renders you invisible, or attempts to anyway. What do you think. And then the girl talks back and says, no, I'm in a position of power. I, you, you can't see me, I can see you. And I just, I found all that so interesting. And I just, I mean, obviously, you, you've got a lot of things to say about that. I mean, Sara, you know, she goes into this with the sense of, you know, because she's quite westernized, she's lived, she spent a lot of her life in the United States. So, so she comes and starts teaching with a certain point of view, with certain biases, and a sense of who these women are that she's teaching. They're covered, they're, you know, they're, they are wearing niqab or hijab. And she judges them. And they're not judging her in quite the same way that she's judging them at the beginning. And she has to learn that about these women. And these women want an education. They're wearing the niqab sometimes because of, again, their fathers or or the, the restrictions that they face personally. And it isn't necessarily their choice, although for some it is choice. So for the character Wasmiya, who makes this accusation eventually against Sara, she makes that choice to wear this niqab and to to do it. But even that, you know, your choices are restricted by the environment you grew up in. So even if you think your choices are free, they are limited by Mm. what you know. And then you don't know, you, you haven't experienced any other way, so you don't know whether you want that other way or not. And so I think that all of those complexities are are played out in this dynamic between Sara and this young student who accuses her mm. of blasphemy. Are there many veiled women in Kuwait? It's a mix, you know, so it really is. I think at the time that the accusation against Sara happened, so in, in 2013, and especially in, when Sara first came back, to teach at Kuwait University around 2001, you would have seen more of the niqab and hijab than you do today. And again, this is different from the period when I was growing up in the 1980s, when I came of age in the late 70s and 80s. You did not see much niqab or hijab in Kuwait. This was very unusual. My mother grew up in the 60s and she was in mini skirts and, you know, sleeveless tops. And that transformation happened 
really into the 80s and into the 90s that you saw the change in what women were wearing mm. for a variety of reasons. And now it's really a mix. You see everything. And so within your own social circles, say, or, or your, your work environment, do you have friends who are veiled and why do they why do they say they wear it? Or is that something you can't discuss with them? I mean... I don't have very many women friends who are veiled, to be honest, but many that wear the hijab and, you know, very fashionable and very stylishly worn. And they have, it isn't really something that I talk about much, but I think it for some it has to do with faith. I think at this point, especially for, you know, women in my age group, the decisions that they're making are their own. My sense of it is, is, is that that is true, that it isn't necessarily that it's forced on them. Mm. And so for them, I think it really is a, it is a mark of, of their faith. For others, I think, again, it can be social pressure. It can be family pressure, especially for the younger women. I think that that's, that's really the case often. Mm. Mm. Yeah. This book goes right back to the 1920s. It's absolutely fascinating, your description of the whole pearl diving and also how the, the bottom kind of dropped out of the, the market in India because China started producing their own uh, stones, synthetic yeah. stones. And you really give us a sweeping, sweeping view, but it's told mostly through the eyes of, of the women, as you say. A lot of forced marriage there, or marriage for economic reasons. I think that was true, certainly of Lulwa, who, and yes, and Yasmin as well. So the parents making this decision. Uh, no, sorry, not for, for Yasmin. Yasmin made her own decision. But Yasmin's mother, Yeliz, who's in Turkey, her parents make that decision that you need, you're going to be marrying this person. And it turned out to be a lucky marriage. Same with Lulwa. Lulwa, you know, a rich family, a merchant family. She's poor. They're not in a position to negotiate. So they, you know, they give their daughter away, so to speak, which, of course, happens for financial reasons, for economic reasons. But I think that despite those examples... In the story, you also find a lot of women choosing their partners, making decisions, and sometimes they are economic decisions or decisions made for the benefit of their family, but many times they're made for love. You know, that they are making these choices for themselves. I think you do, you see that. You see that with, and again, Lulwa is, is the one who really makes uh, it's it's kind of forced, but it was such a lucky marriage for her because she loved him. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that really comes across. It's, it's, yeah. it's very beautifully done. Tell us a little bit about what you write about India at the time. So, again, I wanted to convey, there are two, two Indias, so to speak, here. But on the one hand, I wanted to convey some of that relationship that existed between Kuwait and India, and the trade that linked them together, you know, and the families that went and found a home there and adopted the language and never wanted to come back. I mean, even Lulwa, when she moves to Pune, you know, she does not want to leave. She doesn't want to return. It feels like home. And even her husband, once they do come back and move back to Kuwait, he feels like this was a mistake. We should have stayed, you know, because it was their home for, for so long, for so yeah. many years. So I wanted to convey that, the, the kind of... Comp- the complexity of that relationship to place, to language, but also how where you are born doesn't necessarily have to be or remain your home. And then the other story was the story of Maria. And Maria was Sada's nanny, her ayah, her beloved caretaker, you know, who's really a surrogate mother and in many ways the emotional center of, of the novel. And I think that that story of the caretaker and their relationship to the children that they raise is unrepresented in literature. You don't see it as much. 
in literature and I think in the Middle East, but I think everywhere in the world. It's a relationship that is important to see, that intimate relationship that develops between the nanny and the, the children that they raise mm. was something I wanted. And that India that Maria leaves behind and the hardships that she faces, but the relationship with her own children and how fraught that becomes was something I wanted to, to convey. Mm. And there's a lot about mothers and daughters. And, and I mean, one mother in particular just hating her daughter, being so jealous, really, of the life that a daughter has that she never had a chance to live. Yeah, so Sheikha comes from a really poor family in Kuwait at the turn of the century. And, and leads this really tough life and suffers quite a bit. And the person that she loves the most, her brother, dies in a purling accident. So Sheikha, although she's this kind of bitter, almost hateful woman, turns against her children rather than towards them. I have great sympathy for her because, you know, when you think about she was really brutalized by this much older husband that she was forced to marry. And her children had to witness that brutality. Her response, her kind of perverse response in turning against her children, I found rather interesting because, you know, it goes, it, it's not the conventional expectation we have of women being naturally maternal and turning towards their children. It's very different than Yasmin, who also has a difficult husband, but really embraces her mm. children and wants them to do well in the world. But I found that the exploration of that conflicted relationship to her daughter really interesting. And then Lulwa in a sense embraces that anyway because she knows she doesn't, she has to, to be a daughter, she has to kind of open herself to her mother. Mm. And through that you know, even even um, Sheikha gets to become the kind of mother that she otherwise wouldn't have been able to. Yeah. And I mean, an, an, another big theme here, and I know you've written separately on Palestinians in Kuwait, but another big, another big theme is is the Arab diaspora and how these women move from country to country. And is that, it's not something I've ever thought about. Is that easy within the region? I don't think movement is ever easy, especially when it comes as an outcome of war, yeah. violence, occupation, you know, all the different elements that, that push people to move. And so I don't think it's an easy thing, but it's often necessary. And then again, families, individuals are looking for a place where they can find peace, security, to build new homes for their children. And I think the case of the Palestinians in Kuwait is especially poignant and especially heartbreaking because, again, they came to Kuwait in waves in 1948, 1967, and later in the 70s, and really helped to build the nation-state, the modern nation-state of Kuwait. The Palestinians were an indispensable part of building Kuwait. They were the teachers, they were the doctors, they really bankers and, and professionals of all kinds that worked hand-in-hand hand with Kuwaitis to make Kuwait what it became. After the invasion, of course, for a variety of reasons, one of which has to do with the outside Palestinian support, official support of Saddam Hussein, the Palestinians inside Kuwait unfairly you know, had to bear the, the brunt of, of that support. Mm. And so we're, again, not allowed to return back to Kuwait, those who were out, and their lives were made rather difficult in Kuwait, and so they were kind of pushed to leave. Mm. And that, to me, is heartbreaking because that's like a, you know, a second exile from this place in Kuwait. There were 380,000 Palestinians in Kuwait before the invasion. After the invasion, that number went down to around 70,000. And so this vibrant, dynamic community, which was such an integral part of my growing up, they were our teachers, our friends, you know, were sort of gone. And that, again, felt it felt important for me to 
you know, to convey the sense of that, again, cosmopolitanism in Kuwait. You know, we grew up in a Kuwait that had Arabs from all over the world, Europeans, people from all over the world, part of this dynamic, you know. So it was, it felt important to write about that. And the aftermath of the Iraqi invasion, obviously that's talked about in the book, but do you remember that? Do you remember the invasion? Yes, I absolutely do. For me and people of my age, I would say, and and older, there's a before and an after. So before the invasion, life before and life after, and it changed dramatically and drastically for, you know, as you can imagine. I think all the invasion also contributed to Kuwait moving away from its more heterogeneous cosmopolitan sensibility and openness towards difference and otherness and which is understandable. There was a sense more of having a kind of siege mentality, a, a fear of outsiders, of others, of being betrayed and attacked, which is, you know, understandable, I would say. But I think it was is gone a bit too far as, you know, again, it's cha- it's changed the, the makeup or the sense of, of people in the country. I I was not in Kuwait when the invasion happened. Many members of my family were. My parents uh, were out of Kuwait as well. But it was hor- it was a horrific experience. My sister, my older sister, was in Kuwait when when it happened and was there for the duration. And then we came back in very soon after the liberation. Once we were allowed to come back in, we were in, and it was devastating. You know, the skies were black for months and months. You know, the infrastructure was really destroyed, and it was you know the process of building. What, what was interesting to me that what I wanted to investigate also in 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 the novel was. While on the one hand, the building of infrastructure and, and sort of all the, the damage that you could see happened very quickly and with great energy and, you know, very, great optimism, I would say, as well. But what I think didn't happen was a kind of exploration, almost an existential exploration of what, how did this happen? What happened? How did we react what do we need to do differently as a country mm. to ensure stuff like this doesn't happen? But also, who do we want to become? Is there something that we did to kind of, I don't want to say to cause this, but what was happening internally to create a situation in which something like this could unfold? And I don't think that that has, has that kind of digesting of the trauma on a psychological national level hasn't really happened, I think. Mm. That's my sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't read Arabic, I realise I am missing out on this whole universe of literature. And I wondered if you could just tell us about the the kind of publishing landscape in, in, in Kuwait. Well, I mean, there's so much that's published in Arabic, obviously, in Kuwait. There are publishing houses in Kuwait. Lebanon remains a central publishing hub for for Arabic literature. And there are small publishing houses in Europe that publish in Arabic as well. I mean, because I write in English, it is not really... A much that I'm it's not a landscape that I'm that familiar with you know I don't publish in Arabic myself but in terms of homegrown talent that, there's a lot out yeah. there you know there certainly is there are a lot of writers in Kuwait I mean so Sen Ousi you might be familiar and, and some of their work is being translated to English as well so Sen Ousi he won the Arabic Booker a few years a number of years ago he was he writes in Arabic he's a writer from Kuwait who got some attention outside beyond Kuwait as well mm, uh, fascinating so this has been your first novel You've done, as we said, a book of short stories. What's going to be next for you? I'm working on another novel right now set on the island of Felica. So Felica is an island in Kuwait that was inhabited, it's been inhabited for maybe 3,000 years, since the Bronze Age. Um, 2,000 years. 
<laughs> a few thousand years in any case. And um, Alexander the Great had troops that were there, and that was a kind of settlement, and there are ancient Greek ruins there. There's an old church that's there. There are ancient pagan temples that are there, you know, all sort of in ruins. But it's a real mix of a place that's absolutely fascinating to me. It was inhabited by Kuwaitis for a very long time. After the invasion, they were not allowed to return for security reasons. But when you go to Felica now, it's a place where everything is, it's almost like a ghost town. So there are all the old buildings that were just abandoned. There are all these sort of the sort of the demolition that happened after the invasion. You know, you see all these remnants of things, which is absolutely fascinating to me. And it, it has a kind of sense and atmosphere that I find really interesting. It's a very layered place, historically layered, geologically layered. And I feel like I would like to tell a story about both the place and some of the people who inhabited the place. Well, if it's anything like this book, it's going to be wonderful. Thank you. Um, really, really fascinating insight into into Kuwait, but also that region of the world. May, many thanks. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. That's May Al-Nakib, An Unlasting Home is published by Saki here in the UK. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hole and Monica Lillis. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.